Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. glad that you could spend the afternoon or evening, depending upon your location with us. I want to thank Ken Quiethawk so very much for that amazing introduction. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com. Please check it out. It's a wonderful way of preserving history, and his website is phenomenal. You will thoroughly enjoy learning a lot about our culture that you never even knew existed. Also, if you enjoy this show as well as the other ones that are up on YouTube, please join us and subscribe so that we can let you know when these fabulous shows happen. Mark has an amazing guest here today. It's, it's uh, an interview that I have been awaiting almost breathlessly. Uh, it, it's on a book that, that I think everyone is going to have to read at some time or another if they really want to be informed on what's going on with ancient American stuff. So, without further ado, Mark, welcome to the show, and your wonderful guest as well. Hey, Barbara, how are you? Doing well. Good. Yeah, um, might as well just try try to maximize our time with our guests, so we'll cut out the usual banter, uh, and I think uh, after... Almost a year wait. The day is finally here, and you know, today's show is an example of why the CDC has declared nightlight a public health nuisance. And you know, uh, we will be raising IQ levels a lot today, but it, it won't be painful or harmful. Um, you know, uh, we're very thankful for. Uh, to Inner Traditions and Andrew Collins for granting us one of the first interviews on uh, his ground, uh, groundbreaking book, uh, Denisovan Origins. Uh, you know, this afternoon is the first of a trilogy of shows on this unparalleled new publication. And Barbara's new boyfriend, Dr. Greg Little, will be with us on September 9th for part two, and I think Andrew's coming back in 
later September for a wrap-up of this fantastic book. Um, but it, if you enjoy our frequent explorations of uh, prehistory, you know, like on the Adena culture and native folklore, uh, you know, the deep antiquity that, you know, like Atlantis that Greg and Barbara have gotten into, uh, Denisovan Origins is a must-read. Uh, just, just get the book. Um, even though we have Andrew uh, with us, uh, pra- praising the book is a point of the show. Uh, you know, uh, we can just end it now. Uh, you know, that's just, just go out and get get the book. But I think Andrew wants to explain a little bit more about uh, why you know, why you need to read this. So. Uh, uh, welcome, Andrew. How are you? Uh, yes, fine, Mark. Yes, I look forward okay. to uh, chatting about the Denisovans. So. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and uh, now that everyone uh, just heard Andrew, you uh, you probably recognize his uh, voice from a multitude of appearances on ancient aliens um but you know you get we're gonna get two hours of you know uh covering this new book and you know be working in a little bit of information from his uh gobekli tepe book uh cygnus mystery and many more uh books he he's written on uh prehistoric enigmas uh and andrew will be appearing at a couple of major conferences this fall. He will be at the Edgar Cayce ARE conference at Virginia Beach on October 10th through the 13th, which is where we met about four years ago. And he will be appearing at uh, another conference, the uh, Greenstone uh, Convention conference with a, another Nightlight uh, recent guest, Graham Phillips, and that will be on October 26th and 27th in Wolverhampton, England. So, you know, maybe we should send our Coventry correspondent to zip over there, or maybe our good friend Maria Wheatley will uh, be there and report on the uh, transactions there, but uh, anyhow, you have a uh, Andrew. You have a, a busy fall with uh, some big conferences. Uh, you're going to be uh, promoting uh, your new book. Uh, it's really a, a well done book. Very informative. Um, yeah. And I just want to th- thank you for uh, granting us one of the first interviews on on this latest achievement. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so it, yeah, before we get into <clears throat> who who the Denisovans were, um, and we need to understand the cultural 
so and celestial events that I- impacted uh, the prehistoric peoples of uh, uh, well, like ten, eleven, twelve thousand years ago. So uh, uh, let's spend a little bit of time recreating this time period. Uh, we get the ice age kind of, you know, coming to an end. Uh, what, uh, what else is going on? Um, well, if you take it back to about 13,000 BC, so that's about 15,000 years ago, uh, things were beginning to warm up. The environment was beginning to change. Um, the the flora and the fauna was was changing or shifting its position, you know, uh, further north because the the ice sheets were beginning to melt, uh, and things were looking good in the world, to be honest. Um, and it's very likely that from then onwards until about eleven thousand BC, um, that there was a lot of progress in evolution. Um, I think there was a lot of migrational things going on. Uh, a lot of new cultures beginning to uh, evolve, including in America, the Clovis culture to, towards the end of this. Um, uh, and then everything changed. Uh, just under 13,000 years ago, there was a massive cataclysm that devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, the best minds at the moment suggest, and this is something that I've been saying for many, many years, is that it was a comet impact, a comet that fragmented um, as it came towards the Earth uh, and peppered uh, many parts of the Northern Hemisphere, everywhere from uh, you know Alaska uh, and North America, Central America, right the way across the Atlantic into Europe uh, and probably as far as the Near East um, uh, with these balls of fire which the, probably exploded before they even hit the ground uh, very much like the Tunguska event of uh, was it mm-hmm. 1907 or 1908 and you know and they caused not just incredible devastation but they triggered wildfires that covered large areas of um, you know of all of these um, the, these continents uh, and sent up into there this this terrible ash uh, that was toxic uh, and that created a nuclear winter uh, plus at the same time it would seem that pieces of this this um, this comet impacted with the the ice uh, the ice sheets in North America uh, the water was suddenly released you know this this ice melt water uh, other parts of it were probably vaporized and also went into the atmosphere. Uh, and the water poured out into the oceans, changing the ocean currents, you know, changing their temperatures, bringing them to a halt, to, temporarily at least. Uh, and it, all of this somehow triggered a mini ice age that lasted about 1,200 years, taking us down to about 9,600 B.C., uh, a date which we mark also as the foundation point of Gebekli Tepe. Uh, that's when the earliest, the greatest, the most sophisticated monuments at Gebekli Tepe came into existence. So there's a relationship. Something was going on and something had previously occurred quite clearly before Gebekli Tepe. 
Uh, something that probably has a very long history going back, not just a, th a few thousand years, but tens of thousands of years. And what the book Denisovan Origins uh, tries to uh, put together is that story, the story from the end of the Denisovan period, which was about 45,000 years ago. I mean, technically, some suggest that they could have hung on right the way through to till about 15,000 years ago. But from that time and from what knowledge we have of their existence, particularly in the areas of Siberia, Mongolia, uh, the Tibetan Plateau and China, uh, and see what impact their mindset, their uh, technologies, their material culture had on the foundations of civilization itself. And what I mean by that is the technologies that came to affect the rise of technology, in particular, uh, you know, everything from stone tool technology to the, the wearing of um, uh, tailored clothing uh, through the use of and creation of, of bone needles to the inventions of jewellery, you know, the lapidary trade um, and, and many more things, uh, including, it would seem, the idea of a cosmic journey involved with the soul at the point of death, whether it be the you know the death of a the deceased person or you know of a person, or a shaman entering into a death state or a, a trance state to go to uh, an invisible realm that they believe to exist and was inhabited by spirits and celestial beings and whatever. And what we found is that this death journey which is called the path of souls in northern american tradition would seem to be universal uh every part of its astronomical sorry astronomical geography is found right the way across europe in asia but very importantly and more crucially in north america itself which in theory was isolated from the eurasian continent uh, since around 8,500 BC. So, you know, in other words, whatever had developed in North America as far as this cosmological journey was concerned, clearly had its roots or certainly its, um, its entangled relationship with whatever was going on in Europe and Asia prior to the breakup of the so-called Bringer Land Bridge uh, at the end of the last ice age, you know, after the time of this, this, this cataclysm and the rising of the waters that also resulted from the melting of the ice caps at the very end of this period, which was about 9,600 BC. And, and Andrew, in the uh, opening of your book, and, uh, you know, you have a photo of uh, your uh, friend from uh, Belgium who is looking at the layer of ash uh, at, at – it looks like at a uh, – like a sand dune, uh, yeah. you're at, yeah. at, at a beach, and you, know, you were also on Ancient Aliens discussing that too. Yeah, and, and then uh, you know, further into your book, you discuss the 
almost like post-traumatic stress disorder that such a cataclysmic event had on the people. And, you know, I, 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 I wanted to bring up, you know, the PTSD because it, it you know, you do work it in with uh, the shaman's need to uh, uh, control and predicting comments, but yeah, you, you, uh, you know, let's just take a uh, yeah, okay, a, let's do that. A, a little look at it, the the effect it had on people's psyches. Yeah. Um, well, you talked about PPSD. Um, was it post-traumatic stress disorder? Yes. Now, obviously, this is something that we most associate with things like, you know, conflicts, wars, battles, things like that. Um, you know, but also it can come from accidents, it can come from loss, et cetera, et cetera. And if something like that occurs and somebody is diagnosed with it, you know, where do you go? You go to a therapist, you go to a, a psychotherapist, you go to your doctor, whatever. Well, very clearly... If you go back to the age of Quebec, they didn't have doctors or psychotherapists or whatever. So at the end of this cataclysm, which I don't think was something that just occurred on a, you know, a single few, you know, I mean, I think that the latest estimation is it occurred over a period of 10 to 20 years. But the evidence suggests is that things were going on for hundreds of years. And at the end of this 1200 year period, which, by the way, is called the Younger Dryas. Uh, that's the exact term that's used for it. Um, is that, it, it, I mean, the, you know, stuff was still going on. It may even be that the end of this ice age, because it, it, it occurred so quickly, may well have involved another impact event uh, or some kind of, of, of event that, that caused the, the ice to melt very, really quickly. Even young Klusterman, the, the, the man which, you were describing in that picture, uh, okay. sitting in a wheelchair, looking at what's known as the Ocillo horizon. Now, this is this layer of black ash that would seem to have been deposited when this cataclysm took place around 10,800 BC. Uh, in America, it's known as the black mat. In Europe, it's known as the Ocillo horizon. But it is found in, I think, almost, I think it's something like five continents it's been discovered so far. So it's it's the ash coming back down from the upper atmosphere, essentially following these wildfires and following the fact that the ash was pushed up into into the atmosphere and, and comes down with rain or falls down of its own volition. Now, the thing is that these cataclysms would have seriously affected human consciousness at this time collectively. People would have been in fear every time a comet came into the sky. Uh, they would fear that the world was about to end for proper this time. You know, obviously, we somehow we'd managed to get away with it, with this cataclysm. But that fear would have been there. And that fear of, cat of, of comets is something which is still present even today. And what I describe in the book is a ritual that was witnessed by um, early Europeans in, in Mexico uh, in the 16th century. I think it was the 16th, might have been the early 17th, um, where uh, a priest, a Christian priest, is in a village, he's, he's doing his thing, and a comet appears in the sky. Now, 
almost certainly um, it was, uh, you know, one that we we would familiar be familiar with today, a short-term comet, like Halley's Comet or something like that. But anyway, it was there in the sky, and what this priest witnessed was the local shamans or priests coming out and wearing very specific garb and calling upon the supernatural force that was seen to be associated with that comet to essentially appease it, to stop it causing cataclysm on Earth. Um, Now, what's crucial here is that the priest was wearing a a, a fox pelt, uh, you know, in other words, the, the skin and tail of a fox. Now, I think he was also wearing uh, that of a, uh, a, a large feline as well, but the fox pelt is very, very important because if we go to Gebekli Tepe, the largest stone there, which is Pillar 18 in Enclosure D, the abstract figure whose head is the, the T-shaped termination is also wearing a fox pelt. Now, when you look at this, you think, well, that's obviously hiding his privates. But immediately above this is a belt uh, with these strange symbols on and a belt buckle. And this belt buckle, as soon as I saw it, I thought, that's a comet. That's a three-tailed comet. Uh, And I'm certain of this. I discussed this again. I mean, I've discussed it in a a previous book, you know, Genesis, the Gobekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods. But I've gone into this again because this is so important. Because here you have a clear relationship between the fox pelts which was a symbol of not just comets, the, the fox's tail being a symbol of the, of the comet's tail, something that it is almost universally, but the fox itself and other forms of canine, uh, such as wolves, big dogs, were seen to be personifications of comets in the sky. I mean, the most obvious example of that is Fenris or Fenra, uh, the, the huge you know, gigantic wolf of Norse tradition. Um, It was Ignatius Donnelly, uh, the writer of Atlantis, the Antediluvian World in 1882, in a subsequent book he wrote called um, Ragnarok, uh, the the, Company of Fire and Ice, that basically looked at that whole story of um, the so-called Ragnarok, you know, the, the, the end of the doom of the gods in Norse tradition, where Fenrir is released and causes havoc and swallows the sun and whatever. And he concluded that this was uh, uh, some kind of memory, not so much a future end, but a memory of a cataclysm that had occurred at the end of the last ice age. And he identified Fenris as a comet. And I think he's absolutely correct. I mean, I found many examples where comets are identified as large canines. So the fox that you see, Gobekli Tepe and the fox, tail that's used or fox pelt that's used within these rituals is is symbolic of the supernatural force thought to be behind these comets okay so that's that but going back to this post uh, uh, stress disorder traumatic stress disorder I think that something similar was going on at the time when Quebec de Tepe was was built and it was the visionary writer Barbara Han Clough that also looked into this, these same ideas and came up with the name catastrophobia, the fear of, of further catastrophes taking place. And she associated it with this time frame, and I think she's absolutely spot on the nail with this. 
that you know that that these people lived in fear they they suffered from catastrophobia so what happened was you know shamans came along we can discuss who who they were in a minute mm-hmm. and said look don't worry we can sort it out you know all, all we want you to do is help us build this you know these monuments that we will connect with the stars with the, the starry world you know the end of the journey of this what later would become to be called as the path of souls and this will allow us immediate instant access to the sky world where we can deal on your behalf with the supernatural forces thought to be associated with these cataclysms and we will appease them now how they appease them i've no idea but they appease them and what they would then do is come out of their trances and say to the people no problem this particular comet is not going to cause you any problems. If you get any more, call us again. And that's what was going on. That's exactly what was going on. That's what Gobekli Tepe was constructed for. You know, it was a stargate, if you like, a gateway from this physical material world into the sky world where the shamans could deal with the supernatural forces associated with comets in order to stop them, prevent them causing further cataclysms. And this is why Gobekli Tepe continued on for a period of about 1,500 years. Many new enclosures were built on, you know, one on top of the other or to, to the side of, of one already existing. Uh, when the alignments of any particular enclosure went uh, out of kilter with the, the starry horizon, another one would, would be built to replace it. But then very gradually, when there was no more cataclysms, people began to lose interest in what they were doing. And also they had other concerns now. They were now agriculturalists. The, ne- the Neolithic Revolution was now in full swing. So they were more concerned with the yearly planting um, and reaping of, of you know, the harvest. Uh, whether it be wheat, einkorn, um, barley, you know, which, which obviously were essential now to their lifestyle. So they started to change the orientation of their buildings away from the stars that were important to them uh, towards the sun itself at prominent times of the year, like the equinoxes and the solstices, because now the sun was more important to them than entering into the sky world to deal with this problem. The, the, you know, the problems are gone. And then by about 8,000 BC, Gobekli Tepe no longer has a function, really. And and so people just bury the remaining enclosures and off they go. And at this point, it's the spread of this Neolithic revolution into other parts of the ancient world, uh, into Western Anatolia, into Europe, uh, southwards down into the Indian subcontinent, eastwards into China, etc., etc., you know, that's, that's when our civilization really kicks off, I suppose, because that's where everybody gets into place with, with whatever country it is, obviously not America, that's already closed off, and gets ready for the, for the building of the first city-states, the first great urban centers, uh, and the rise of civilization that we know today. Okay, Andrew, you bring... A- personal insight you know to these theories that you were just discussing like you know uh, 
Yeah, the uh, Gobekli Tepe wasn't uh, needed anymore, and uh, like there weren't any more uh, comets just coming out 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 of the blue and, and incinerating the Earth. And yeah, uh, you know, okay, but, uh, you know, the, the, those theories are actually based on you visiting the uh, Gobekli Tepe site, the museums in, in the area that curate the artifacts found from the uh, site. You, know, you were uh, uh, friends with Klaus Schmidt, the, the lead archaeologist of the site. So, you know, uh, yeah, you were a researcher who was visiting this location years ago. It uh, led to your Gobekli Tepe book, and then, you know, part of the your most recent book is a uh, continuation of. Your expedition to Turkey, and you, know, you, you have in both books photos of like the uh, like fox pelts and uh, like the comet, uh, the three-tailed comet. Um, you, you also draw a lot of attention. Uh, to pillar 43 that has the uh, uh, turkey uh, vultures on, on it. Yeah, th uh, that's a really important uh, artistic motif that we need to understand at this point because it, it's going to become uh, apparent later on in the book about what this symbol really represented. So can, can you tell us a little bit about it, 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 the, the importance of um, Pillar 43 and actually being at this site that is really a, a game changer for our understanding of uh, prehistory? Yeah. Um, well, Pillar 43 is more commonly known as the Vulture Stone. Uh, and the reason is obvious. There's a big vulture on it uh, carved into it in relief uh, amongst many many other uh, animals I must point out but this, it's obvious that this is the central feature of it uh, and it's a very strange looking vulture it has wings that sort of arch up and then bend down to form like a, a, a the letter W um, and there's other stuff on there which, which we'll come on to but it's very clear that there's something going on here. This is not just simply some kind of um, random collection of, of animals. So that you know, you look at it and you think this is some kind of map. This is some kind of key. And um, it was the archaeo astronomer uh, Juan uh, Juan Belmonte uh, in I think 2002. I mean, it's not 2002. No, I think 2012. That's it. That first suggested that. One of the key figures on there, other than the vulture, which is a, a scorpion, c 
could represent the astronomical constellation of Scorpius. Uh, he wrote a little paper on this. Um, and then some Armenian researchers, uh, not me, some people think it's, it's all me makes this up, but some Armenian researchers looked at that, that stone and they worked out that the vulture looked precisely as the constellation of Cygnus, the celestial bird did, back around 9000 BC, you know, the, the, the rough time frame that this stone was created and put in place within Enclosure D, which is the, 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 the most intact and, interesting enough, the oldest of all of the enclosures at Gobekli Tepe. Uh, it's positioned, by the way, in the north northeast, sorry, north northwest part of it, which I think is astronomically significant as well. But anyway, so they suggested that it, that it was Cygnus. Now, why they were interested in Cygnus is because there is a massive stone circle complex in Armenia called Karahunj, um, and Karahunj uh, has various stones that have holes in, and what the Armenian researchers worked out is that they seem to be aligned stars, and the star that kept coming up for them was Deneb, the brightest star in Cygnus. Uh, they felt that uh, dates could be applied to this complex of around 5000 BC, which is, you know, it's a few thousand years after Kobetli Tepe, but it might have been part of the same tradition. But the other important thing is that there is a village not far from Karahunj that uh, has the word Anjuk within it, which means vulture. Um, and not only that, but in Armenian tradition, and interesting enough in uh, Greek and Near Eastern tradition, but in a more obscure way, is that Cygnus, although seen as a swan in most of Europe and Asia, was seen as a vulture in Armenian tradition. Now, that's what particularly took their interest, that here was a representation of their constellation on a stone, Pillar 43, that had been manufactured around 9000 to 9500 BC. Now, when I found out about this, I was particularly interested, not only in the work of the Armenians, but that of uh, Juan Belmonte, because what it suggested is that the key to unravelling what was going on in that stone was the constellation of Cygnus. Uh, and what I'd already found out and had written about in a book called The Cygnus Mystery that came out in 2006 was that Cygnus seems to have been seen as a point of entry and exit into the sky world for many different cultures uh, going back, uh, you know, certainly to the age of Gobekli Tepe. I mean, that's what I wrote. And uh, when I wrote that, the... The, the, the pillar, the 43, had not even been discovered, which I find uh, wow. uh, very interesting. You know, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I went to Quebec Tepe in 2004, and I looked at the stone, and all you could see was the top of it. So the, that stone had not even been uncovered, the, the, the vulture stone. So I'd worked out that Quebec Tepe and many, many, many other sites around the world were aligned to Cygnus, you know, including Avebury in Britain, um, various Native American uh, mound complexes, particularly Great Circle in Ohio. 
mm-hmm. um, and you know, and, and other sites around the world all seem to have that 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 particular area of the sky of interest, and that the importance of Cygnus was that it is placed at a position on the Milky Way where the Milky Way splits in two, uh, forks. Uh, the reason why it forks in two is because there is a area of dark debris along the plane of the Milky Way and yeah that causes this effect as you look at it in the sky I mean if you look at it it's either like a fork or you know two legs of somebody opening up from a you know from a body Um, and precisely at the spot where that so-called dark rift or great rift or even called the Cygnus rift begins are obviously the stars of Cygnus in particular the bright star Deneb. Now, what I also didn't know when I when I worked all this out is that there were academics in America working on this path of souls death journey amongst the Native American peoples. And what they'd worked out is that this journey involved a leap of faith of the dead, whether it be the dead, a deceased person or that of a shaman, the, you know, the soul of a shaman, towards the constellation of Orion. Um, And from Orion, the soul would then travel along the Milky Way until it got to the star Deneb in Cygnus. And it would then be judged. And thereafter, it would enter into the sky world proper. Uh, Now, exactly where that was or what it did after that is unclear. But it seems that the portal between, let's say, the physical universe and the invisible sky world was Cygnus. Um, And, of course, when I found out this, which I think was about 2012 or 2013 from my colleague Greg Little, who obviously I've now co-authored this this book with, I mean, it just blew my mind because, you know, what it suggested is that amongst Native American tribes, this same tradition that was found at Gebekli Tepe was adhered to them, not just within the past, you know, few hundred years before historical contact, but it was present also at a great many mound complexes. And this is something that Greg has checked thoroughly. He's gone back to all of these mound complexes, looking at the alignments, and, and it becomes very clear that there are three main points of interest on the celestial horizon associated with these complexes. One is the the setting of the sun or the rising of the sun at midwinter and alignments towards two specific constellations, Cygnus and Orion. It's almost as if those two constellations have this dual purpose. You know, one receives the soul and that's Orion and one then essentially pushes it out of the physical universe into the you know the invisible sky world if you like so they work in unison together that was the missing part of my jigsaw because i didn't really feature orion in my works uh, and actually got criticized for it by you know supporters of the orion correlation in uh, egypt but what i now realize is that they're all part of the same thing the two are the two pieces of a massive jigsaw, and it's present in Egypt. In Egypt, the pyramid texts 
tell us about a very specific journey of the soul of the deceased, most obviously that of the pharaoh, um, and it's astronomical, and it talks about the soul going first to Orion, where it's received by this god called Sar, S-A-H, but it then go, continues its journey along the Milky Way to the Cygnus constellation. Uh, and the, the Cygnus constellation is represented by the goddess Nuit, um, and particularly her womb. Uh, and the pyramid texts talk about her warm embrace of you know, the deceased upon his return, uh, and thereafter he, he enters into the afterlife proper. So it's exactly the same. You have exactly the same soul journey in Egypt as you have in North America. And this is something that Graham Hancock has also recognized in his most recent book, America Before. He acknowledges Greg and myself as having sussed this out or having worked on it, but he goes into it in greater detail from his own perspective as well. Um, so, you know, we're not wrong. If Graham Hancock is now onto it and Greg was onto it, I'm onto it, you know, I don't think we're wrong here. You know, this is what we call the path of souls, uh, you know, journey, death journey, and it's, mm -hmm. it's there, it's universal. So, you know, and it's there at Quebecli Tepe. It's there. I mean, and, and what my engineer colleague, Rodney Hale, has found is that that pillar 43 is a very specific sky map um, and the center of the sky the so-called northern celestial pole is represented by this ball actually that seems to be suspended over one of the wings of that vulture and when you synchronize the northern celestial pole with that point Cygnus is in the right place covering the, the, the vulture um, and the scorpion is there reaching up, coming out of the, the, the underworld, which is its place. It, and everything falls into, into position and it's perfect, absolutely perfect. Now, I must point out that there are alternative theories as to what is going on on Pillar 43. Some of my colleagues think that the vulture is Sagittarius and it represents the sun you know, at the time of the cataclysm or whatever. But, um, you know, everybody's entitled to their views. But I believe that the view that we've got is the is one that makes absolutely sense. In other words, Pillar 43 is uh, the soul journey. It's the map of the soul journey that the deceased or that of the soul of the shaman would take on their way to the sky world. And this is reflected also in the north-northwestern alignments of all the main uh, enclosures at Quebecli Tepe. Okay, and, and uh, since you just mentioned it, it might be a, appropriate to just bring it up now. Uh, you're just talking about the path of souls, and and uh, you know, Greg makes a convincing case, and is book by the same title that you know, and, uh, that's part of the Native American uh, folklore uh, in you know the uh, book we're discussing you, know, you make a convincing case that you can trace 
uh, in the native some parts of the native folklore directly back to uh, the Denisovians and uh, th- there is a cultural continuity w- which would I- imply that uh, you know, stories were brought with people say starting at, at around you know, Gobekli Tepe and went around the world and lingered on it, into uh, you know, uh, parts of America for nearly ten thousand years. Yes, I mean, you know, the question then becomes who built Gobekli Tepe, uh, and this was something that I looked at years ago within my book Gobekli Tepe: Genesis of the Gods, um, and the key is stone tools uh, and projectile mm-hmm. points. I mean, if you go to Gobekli Tepe, you can't do it now, but uh, because it's all like the sort of Turkish Stonehenge, basically. But I mean, when I first went there in 2004, you walk towards it, and we we, we had to approach it, uh, basically across the fields, uh, down the valleys, and the rest of it. We couldn't even find a road to get to it. And the closer you got to it, the more stone tools you found. I mean, they were literally littered i mean there were thousands of them i mean not just a few thousands and you think why were the the these early neolithic these so-called pre-pottery neolithic people so wasteful with all their stone tools well i can't answer that you know uh, directly at the moment but the one thing that became apparent is that they were all of a certain type uh, and that's what we call blade technology or blades or bladelets and these are these are these are like long slim very sharp shards that are prized off of prepared stone cores uh, that are prepared specifically for this purpose Um, and what what happens is that you get a instrument that looks very much like a sort of handle uh, of like a saucepan, and you, you you put it on the the core, and you put pressure down, and it pings off one of these shards, uh, and it has to be done exactly perfectly, uh, otherwise you're just going to make a mess basically, or it's just not going to work. And this is what we call um, blade or blade, yeah, blade technology. But it, it's done using a process called pressure flaking. I mean, which obviously is, is this process of, of, of like prizing off these 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 fl- these flakes. Well, they're not flakes. I mean, they, they're called blades. A blade is a flake of stone that's more than two to two and a half the size of its width. Yeah. So you know, it's just a long, slim thing, like a razor thing, and they're all over the place. Now, you say to yourself, well, okay, what does this mean then? Well, trying to understand the origins of blade tool technology is the key to understanding who built Gobekli Tepe, because it's like a paper trail. And the one thing that we know is that the people 
that introduced blade tool tool technology at the end of the last ice age was a particular carrier, what I call a carrier culture. In other words, they were carrying this technology was a people called the Swiderians. Um, Very specifically, it was them that carried it from the Ural Mountains that uh, border Asia and Europe. And they carried them right the way across to the Caucasus region, uh, north of the Black Sea, what is today Ukraine and Russia, uh, north into areas like Finland, Scandinavia, uh, the Baltic region, Estonia, Lithuania, uh, and by virtue of that, all the way across, essentially, into the the British Isles and, and Western Europe. Now, this was a wave of activity. There had been earlier waves, which we will get on to, but the tools that were found at Gebekli Tepe are of the same type that were carried by the Swiderians. I mean, that is almost one of their signature marks. Now, archaeologists don't deny it, although what they do say is, oh, well, you know, we, we can't seem to find any that are earlier than about 9000 BC. Gebekli Tepe was started in 9600 BC. But if you go into the museum at Shanlurfa, which is only about eight miles away from Quebecly Tepe and has got most of the, the discoveries and finds that have made. You look at their collection of stone tools, they are all of this type. I mean, they're beautiful, they're incredible. Um, and this type of technology comes in from the north. It comes in from between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, across the, 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 the Caucasus into Anatolia. Uh, it's also going, obviously, a little bit to the east into Iran at the same time. Um, and, yeah, this, there, there's definitely a wave of influence of people coming in. So what I proposed in the earlier book, um, uh, Gebekli Tepe Genesis of the Gods, is that Swiderians may well have been the catalysts for the creation of Gebekli Tepe. But the... Skeptics said, well, you know, well, there's no real evidence that, you know, that the, the Swiderians were making monuments like Quebec Tepe, and, and that's absolutely true. But if you follow this paper trail back to where they themselves originated, you will see carvings that are similar to what you get at Quebec Tepe. Because if you look at something called the Shigir Idol, which is this incredible totem pole which was originally something like 20 foot two feet tall that was found in this peat bog uh just to the um the east of the the urals uh it has carving and a style of it that is incredibly similar to what you see at gobekli tepe and again this is not just me talking here academics are now saying exactly the same thing i talked about the shigir idol in my, my last book the, the cygnus key now the academics are saying exactly the same thing. There's a relationship between this, these Uralic peoples and the foundation of Gebekli Tepe. Um, and so you then have to say, well, what goes further back than that? Well, if you start following the paper trail of these stone tools or, and projectile points even further back in time, you find that their place of origin is Mongolia. Uh, and this is, again, an academic thing. This is not me making it up. And 
the origin of blade tool technology and pressure flaking can be pinned down to some early Upper Paleolithic sites in the area of Mongolia. And how topical is this? Because in the last day or so, it has been proposed by archaeologists and scientists that blade tool technology not only began in that area, but that the Denisovans may well have had a hand in its creation. And this is, this is this, I can't make this up because this is exactly, exactly what I'm saying in Denis- Denisovan origins, in my part of it. Obviously, he, um, uh, uh, Greg is, is obviously focusing on, on the American side of it. But this brings us on to the Denisovans themselves. Who the hell were they and what's their story? Yeah, and a- Andrew, you... As you know, we get to the culture that's the uh, primary focus of the book, you know, you're really looking at uh, scant osteological evidence. You get a lot of uh, artifacts, you know, you know, the stone tools you were mentioning. Uh, you know, we talk about the uh, tiara from layer eleven, um, but but there's a. It, it it just seems like all this information that you're giving us. And you know, you've referenced the academics have been uh, you know, saying this uh, recently, but you and Greg take us back to like the 1880s uh, to like the 1930s, where there were uh, a lot of researchers. Finding some of these very uh, 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 like Neanderthal-looking type skulls, but they're a little different. Uh, a, a lot of them were found around the uh, Roche de Sultre. Um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, and you know, you and Greg are linking what academia has acknowledged for about 140 years through the modern uh application of dna but 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 uh yeah there there were the salutrians uh wedged in here at, at, at this time period, as we get into uh, discussing the Denisovians as well, and, and you know, there, there there was the you know, legacy of uh, horses and the horse horse riding. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that sh- uh, shipbuilding, or they're doing something to cross oceans? Yes, yeah. I, um... There's a big story here, obviously, which we'll try and condense. But I mentioned that the Swiderians were 
mm-hmm. just one wave of activity um, pulsing from the Ural Mountains, although ultimately their story probably begins with their own ancestors passing through Western Siberia, coming all the way from the area of the Altai uh, and possibly, you know, the, the Mongolia in, in what is today, you know, Mongolia and Northwest um, China. But there were early earlier pulses because when uh, certain prehistorians uh, looked at the Swiderian tradition and the Swiderian tolls, they immediately started recognizing that they were similar to those that had been manufactured several thousand years earlier by a people called the Salutrians. Now, the Salutrians were a major culture uh, in the Upper Paleolithic period in southwest um, Europe, mostly in France and Spain. And they thrived from about 20,000 BC down to about 15,000 BC, and then they just seemed to disappear. Uh, What exactly happened to them, you know, has been a bit of a mystery. But their main period that they were around, they manufactured the most beautiful stone tools and stone projectiles that you could ever imagine. They were like beautiful jewels uh, made from not just flint and obsidian, but also from amethyst, rock crystal uh, and other, you know, precious minerals that quite clearly were exotic and chosen for for this purpose. Uh, And they used pressure flaking, the very same type of technique that the Swiderians later seem to reinvent or certainly inherit from perhaps peoples that, um, you know, had already been using it on the other side of the Urals in in Asia. Um, And prehistorians um, like V. Gordon Child, for instance, um, you know, was one of the greatest historians of the 20th century, right. wrote about this relationship, you know, and, and he, he looked at the Salutrian and he looked at the Swedians and he said, you know, clearly one has come from the other, but they're obviously not directly linked because there's several thousand years between them. There must have been some kind of, um, you know, mother culture, if you like, behind them. And there are people who we call the Eastern Gravatians. Now, the Eastern Gravatians probably thrived from about, I'm going to say about 30 to 35,000 years ago down to the time of the Salutrians. And they were mostly in Eastern Europe, uh, in Russia, places like uh, Kostenki and Sungar uh, in, in, in Western Central Russia. Uh, but also they were in places like Czechoslovakia, um, and you know, and, and other parts as well. But those were their main territories, and they were incredibly advanced people. Uh, I mean, they wore tailored clothing. They built these beautiful timber timber buildings. They may well have astronomically aligned certain of their of their structures. They may well have been playing around with agriculture as early as thirty thousand years ago, uh, and they were also using blade technology. And this is the same technology that eventually ends up with the Salutrians uh, and also with the Swiderians, basically. Um, and it looks like they are the missing part of the jigsaw. But the Salutrians themselves are to modernly seen as isolated. They had no connection at all with the Gravatian peoples. 
uh, it was it, archaeologists now believe that they developed in isolation. But this was definitely not what the archaeologists believed in the late 19th, early 20th century. They saw the comparisons between the Thalutrian, um, you know, the, what they call these, these beautiful um, leaf points and those that were manufactured by the Gravatian peoples, particularly those at places like Kostenki in Russia. And they said that it's very obvious that the Salutrians came from the east and went all the way through Europe and ended up, you know, uh, basically in the Atlantic coast of, of, of Europe. They were, they were moving very fast. Now, their type site, in other words, the place that we get their name from, is a place called Sulutri in central eastern France. And there is this massive, uh, huge rock that, 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 that clears out of the landscape and, you know, is so uh, mesmerizing, you just can't take your eyes off of it. And in the 1860s, initially, archaeologists found not only these, you know, Salutrian leaf points, but also human remains. And unfortunately, a lot of these have, have, have now gone completely missing, so we can't examine them today. But it was very clear anatomically that the people that were, were classified as Salutrians were not locals. You know, they were not the same as the so-called Aurignacian people that are already present in Europe at this time. Uh, they had great similarities to people from the Baltic region, places like um, Finland, Estonia, uh, but also they appeared to have uh, features that were Asian in origin. Um, and this was put forward in, in scholarly journals at the time, but then completely ignored uh, because it was believed that the Salutrians themselves had developed all of their culture on the spot and had no connection. And the reason why all of this changed is because a picture of the Salutrians started to build in the minds of early archaeologists that they were like these marauding hordes, you know, like the Mongols um, from medieval period who'd come through into Europe, bashing everybody on the head and just coming through and doing their own thing and just hanging around until eventually they just die out. They had no real contribution to European Paleolithic, you know, development. And that's just crap, to be honest. I mean, we now know that a lot of the earliest and greatest of the K-Bar is that of the Salutrians. We know that they created uh, not only beautiful relief art, which is distinctly similar to that of Gebekli Tepe, uh, but also that they created the earliest standing stones, uh, particularly one that's decorated uh, that was found at one of the cave sites in France. Plus, they also buried their dead in these stone-lined graves that had these massive um, standing stones at either side that were so sophisticated, and yet they disappear and are not, found again until the Neolithic era, about, you know, three, 4,000 BC. But on top of this, they used bone needles to create tailored clothing, and also they almost certainly rode horses. 
uh, it would seem as if they not only tamed uh, and domesticated and almost certainly rode horses, but that they may well have brought horses with them because the type of horse that's been found uh, at Solitary, the closest that we have to it is a particular species that is found today in Mongolia and the Altai Mountains. Uh, so it is very possible that Solutrians entered Europe very quickly and they were definitely using horses and that that, that knowledge was passed on after their disappearance to the earliest Magdalene people um, who inherited you know, quite a lot of Salutrian ideas and possibly even some of their, you know, their, 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 their heritage, their DNA, um, around, I don't know, let's say 15,000 to 13,000 BC, and that they continued these traditions, but somehow they died out and are no longer were no longer available until the Bronze Age when horses are reintroduced into Europe by peoples that are taking that same route all the way from the Urals, the Russian steppe, right the way across Europe into the British Isles and Spain and France under the name the Beaker people. That's where they started their journey. And I believe that there is ample evidence to suggest that the Lutrians did indeed start their journey in the area of the Urals uh, and possibly even beyond it in the Altai or Mongolia and ended that journey. And when I say ended, I mean temporarily ended it in the area of the Atlantic coast of Europe. But then the question comes, what happened next? And Dennis Stanford, Bruce Bradley, in their incredible book, um, Across Atlantic Ice, paint an incredible picture of the Salutrians using boats, being sophisticated enough to create uh, seagoing vessels that they used to initially exploit, um, ex, uh, explore and exploit uh, offshore islands, but then gradually, moment by moment, time bit by bit, they crossed the Atlantic ice flows and reached the Americas, probably making landfall in the area of the Chesapeake Bay, that area there, where leaf points, very similar to those of the Salutrians, have been found on several occasions. Uh, and these are documented by Stanford and Bradley in their book, Across Atlantic Ice. Uh, and that's not all. There is DNA evidence of the presence mm -hmm. of, of Salutrians in the Americas. And it's a subject which is very exciting but also very controversial as well because quite clearly the idea that Europeans might have been you know amongst the earliest peoples to settle in North America has been snatched up by you know white supremacists and whatever and, and used for their you know purposes but here's the thing I don't even think the people that became the Salutrians were Europeans I think that they were Asians uh, and that their features were probably closer to what we would call, you know, Mongolians or Northern Asian peoples than they were to Europeans. And, and I think that that is actually very, very, very important uh, because the people that were arise, arriving in America from Europe probably had Asian features themselves and had certainly had Asian ancestry and that they'd made a journey 
that began in the area of Mongolia and the Altai Mountains of, of Siberia. And they traveled westwards and ended up in the Americas. But at the same time, other people of the same origin were going eastwards into China and up into the Russian Far East and then crossing over the Beringia land bridge uh, very gradually, obviously that was covered in ice, um, and eventually they reached North America via via this, you know, this 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 other route, the route from Asia, and of course they come together in the Americas. You have mm-hmm. people arriving here from Europe, you have people arriving here from the Russian Far East, and as what both Greg and I say in both of our parts of the book is that there's also ample evidence that there were people arriving from Ireland uh, and mainland Southeast Asia as well, carrying Austro-Melanesian DNA into particularly South America. So you have this huge admixture of people who are arriving in Americas from as early as 30,000, perhaps 50,000, and arguably even much earlier still. Uh, And this is the story of the genesis of America, Uh, one that involves Gebekli Tepe, one that involves the Denisovans who we haven't even got onto yet, uh, but one that begins very clearly in the same part of the world, and that is the area of of Mongolia and Siberia, uh, and what we, you know, parts of northwest China, and also the Tibetan Plateau, because we now have a jawbone of a Denisovan found on the Tibetan Plateau and its northeastern extremes at a place called Zahi. Uh, and uh, this was found as early as 1980 and has only recently been properly identified as a Denisovan jawbone. And that discovery not only gives us a better idea of the geographical extent of the, of the Denisovans, but on top of that, the, the dentistry um, of the, that jawbone is also telling us a lot about what happened to the, the hybrid descendants of the Denisovans, where they reached uh, and where they may have ended their days. Thank you. Well, a- Andrew, uh, you know, this you know, theory may seem controversial, but what happened with these migrations coming from the east and west? You know, probably uh, with all all these uh, groups of people trekking across the Arctic tundra, eventually making it through Ontario and other parts of Canada down to America. It's still no different than uh, people vacationing and uh, maybe uh, migrating permanently, you know, know, immigrating to America uh, to live here permanently. Uh, Today, it's basically the same idea. It's just you know, that, uh, that's just human nature is to go where uh, it, it, it it's most suitable for your lifestyle. So uh, you know, 
as nothing's really changed in 50,000 years, but we can trace some of these uh, cultural concepts across the uh, uh, Arctic with like the swan mythology uh, found with the Eskimo peoples, and uh, you know, you make a convincing case that 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 uh, cosmological I- imagery goes back to all these like Neanderthal and Salutrian people that you've just been mentioning. Yeah. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about that, and how how does that imagery uh, connect us back to Gobekli Tepe? Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, you talk about, you know, these migrations. Well, the first thing that we, we have to realize is that migrations are always two, two ways. Uh, if somebody migrates from point A and goes to point B, uh, you know, some of those groups are always going to want to go home eventually. Um, so that establishes a, a two-way contact, which may well be exploited at a later point for trade, for instance. Uh, I mean, we know the, the Swiderians, for instance, would trade across many hundreds of miles. I mean, possibly even up to a thousand miles with, with their ideas that, that cross-communication, uh, transportation of exotic materials and things like that. Um, so that's that's the idea. But obviously coming to America is probably a little bit more difficult to get back afterwards. But it is possible that with the Salutrians that they were making the journey back and forth uh, from you know, the area of France into the area of, of, of the eastern United States in particular, but also obviously further up north into Canada. Um, and what's so interesting particularly once we get into the great lakes um st lawrence river area is that you have the people there uh, called the ojibwa uh, and the cree uh, obviously you know incredibly large uh, tribal uh, you know federations of people and they have dna that links them with peoples in in southwest um europe but also they have the potential of Denisovan DNA. Not all of them, but sometimes it can be as much as 3%. Sometimes it, it was very, very low. Um, but they have the potential higher than any other tribe in the United States to possess it. So you have to ask yourself, where does this Denisovan DNA come from? And I think that now we need to start focusing really on the Denisovans themselves. Who were they and what is their place in this story? Well, we didn't know anything about them before, uh, I think it was 2010, when a a little finger bone that had been found in this Russian cave in Siberia called uh, the Denisova Cave, uh, named after a a monk who who was a hermit and recluse there in the 18th century. And... Archaeologists have been working up there since, I think, the 1980s, if I'm rightly. And they'd gone down, you know, something like 22 different layers. Well, when they came to layer 11, which corresponds to about 
30, 40,000 years ago down to about 60 to 70,000 years ago, they started to find something quite unique. Uh, not only were they, they finding, you know, obviously just slip, um, you know, weird artifacts, which included this, um, this what they call the Denisovan bracelet now, which is this, this bangle, this thick bangle made of a green stone called chloritolite. That's it, chloritolite, a very difficult name, uh, which contains a green material known as chlorite. Uh, they found frag two fragments of that, which was incredibly sophisticated and had a hole in it, which when examined under a microscope, uh, had a feed rate of the, um, you know, of the carved marks on the inside of it that suggested that it was made by a very fast drill. Uh, you know, so somehow whoever created it had the ability to pierce holes in stone very fast. Uh, plus, they found the oldest bone needle in the same layer. In fact, in fact, there are at least two or three bone needles, one particularly important one in fully intact with a hole at the end, clearly used for manufacturing clothes. Uh, they also found horse DNA in there, an evidence of, of, of horse activity, uh, which has prompted some scientists to suggest that the Denisovans may well have domesticated and possibly even ridden horses, uh, plus the stone tool technology. This was very similar to that that was being manufactured by our own modern human ancestors from around 45,000 years ago, all the way, not just to the end of the Upper Paleolithic period at 9,600 BC, but beyond that, into the Neolithic Age. Indeed, it was kept all the way through till the Bronze Age. So that particular stone tool technology begins in the area of the Denisovan Cave. It's also been located at various other sites in the region. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, it's also been found at sites in Mongolia, in northern Mongolia, south of the huge inland sea known as Lake Bacow. Um, and scientists are beginning to suspect that the Denisovans may well have been the creators of this stone tool technology. And that's so, so important because if they were, then this paper trail I talked about earlier begins with them and doesn't just be begin and end with them because we know that there are populations all over the world that carry Denisovan ancestry. They have the DNA, certain genes that were given to them on a plate through interbreeding, so-called introgression, as the, as the geneticists call it. Um, and this is one of the ways how we can tell where the Denisovans ended up. I mean, for instance, there are a great many populations in, in Ireland and mainland Southeast Asia who have Denisovan DNA in Eastern Asia, in Papua New Guinea, in the Philippines, Australia, Solomon Islands, um, you know, in, the, in Oceania, um, and in, uh, in, in India, for instance, uh, in certain areas in Siberia, uh, and in America. Uh, as I said, the Ojibwa and the Cree have the highest instance of, um, of, Denisovan DNA. 
Uh, it's not very high, but it's certainly present there. Uh, and that suggests that the ancestors of the Ojibwa and the Cree gained their, their ancestry from Denisovans. Now, whether this came from people migrating from Siberia across the Russian Far East into America, or whether it came from the Thalutrians, who I suspect will have been carrying at least a small degree of Denisovan DNA, we can't say yet. There is, there is absolutely no answer. But I spend a lot of time with the Ojibwa in the book because they are one of the main promoters of this path of souls death journey which we've been talking about you know the one that begins uh with orion although i will admit with, amongst them one of their, their point of beginning for it is actually the pleiades uh constellation which is obviously very close to uh orion but in many of the other tribes it's actually orion and in particular a star within the sword of orion in, in his form of of this you know this giant figure known as M42, Messier 42, which is, you know, this nebula object. Uh, and for some reason, nobody knows why, uh, they chose that as the portal uh, that the dead would reach to enter into the Milky Way before the journey round to Cygnus uh, and then out of the physical universe completely into the afterlife. And... Andrew, um, as you, know, you did focus on the Ojibwa, uh, you, know, you do draw our attention to citing studies. Uh, that were recently done, you know, professionally done DNA studies that link uh, bone evidence from China, China, Spain, and Montana. Uh, yeah. yeah, I thought that was a, a very interesting point that uh, – yeah, you know, connects this uh, um, worldwide migrations, trading, uh, just, just expansion of well, exploration of the world as well. In you know tens of thousands of years before Columbus. Yes, yeah, well, let's, let's just, you know, do a little bit of a timeline here. Uh, I mean, the Denisovans disappear around 45,000 years ago. I mean, certainly the branch of them in Siberia, uh, northern China, uh, Tibetan plateau area, uh, Mongolia, et cetera, et cetera. That, they're known as the Siberian or the, or the Altais. Uh, Denisovans, but there was a separate branch of them down in mainland and island Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. uh, and also in places like Philippines, New Papua New Guinea, Australia. We call those the Sunda Denisovans. They they seem to be 
a, a different branch of them altogether. Uh, connected, but possibly with a far more archaic form of DNA, of, you know, the same genome, but more an archaic form of it. Now, there is suggestion that they hung on until about 15,000 years ago. So that's, that's significant. Uh, and then, obviously, you've got Gebekli Tepe at 9,600 BC. Before that, of course, you had this younger Dryas cataclysm. And it would seem that after this cataclysm and with the building of Gebekli Tepe and the Neolithic Revolution, whatever, what has gone on before that cataclysm is forgotten about. Um, there's a certain amount of amnesia. Um, and we're only beginning to piece together this story based on genetics, archaeology, uh, you know, anthropology, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're piecing together a huge story that goes back and connects with the Denisovans, particularly those in Siberia, who I think were probably the most advanced of them. Uh, I've seen no real evidence yet that their cousins, the Sunda Denisovans, uh, had the same type of sophistication and technological development. Um, it may be there, we may be looking at it and just not recognising it. But what we do know is that those that were in the area of Mongolia, Siberia, Tibetan Plateau and China were sophisticated and that they achieved uh, you know, a state of evolution that was strong enough to have impacted on the foundations of our own origins during the Upper Paleolithic period from about 45,000 years ago. And that's exactly what the archaeologists are saying just this week. And all of this is in Denisovan Origins, the book. But I also say it, and I have to say this, in the Cygnus Key, my other book, which came out, when was it? Last year, is it 2018? I think it came out. So, you know... Um, We've been working on this for some years, and it seems as if we are working in advance of what the archaeologists and the scientists are willing to admit, or they can't, they're just waiting for the, the final pieces of the jigsaw to come out and announce it. Uh, but we are working in advance. Graham Hancock's book is a perfect companion to Denisovan Origins. I mean, I read that recently as a nice review I've put online. Um, and I think that our books are almost part of a new breed, really, where we are looking not at something like Atlantis or, you know, aliens as, as the origins of civilization. And I'm not saying there is no merit in those theories, but we're looking at a third possibility. And that is that we have inherited the fundamental or the rudimental parts of civilization from somebody else, from an archaic human or a pre-sapiens type of human um, and that's either the Denisovans or the Neanderthals. Uh, in other words they had it before us and they they handed it, handed it to us on a plate and this is something which archaeologists and anthropologists have been unwilling to accept. They've seen the, the Neanderthals as brutes you know sluggish brutes um, and that's just not the way that they were. They didn't. They were not hunchbacks, you know, sort of in the sort of Richard the Third style of of, of, of of history, as we sh as we now know. Richard the Third 
was a perfectly normal guy, you know? Uh, his, obviously, his remains were found beneath a car park in Leicester. And we now know that the Neanderthals were the same. You know, they, they, they stood upright. They were not hunchback. That was a Victorian creation to show that they were lesser than us. And now we can accept that, and we can accept that the, the, the Neanderthals had a high culture, almost certainly we can accept right from the word go that the Denisovans had high culture as well. Not only that, but they were incredibly sophisticated. You know, they did have tailored clothing. They had a sophisticated stone tool technology. They created amongst the earliest musical instruments. You know, a, a bone whistle or flute was also found in the Denisovan layer, in the Denisovan cave. Um, you know, they, pay, they may well have ridden horses. Um, and all of these ideas are carried, certainly westwards, into Europe by people like the Eastern Gravatians, the Salutrians, and eventually the Swiderians. And all of these have an impact on the upper Paleolithic, um, you know, uh, age of, of Europe, but also on the development of places like Gebekli Tepe in the Near East. And, you know, I challenge anybody out there to give me a better alternative to the development of, you know, civilization in this way. Uh, it's just, you know, it makes sense. And the more that we find, the more it makes sense. And, <clears throat> Andrew, you gave us um, you know, some great information on the uh, material culture, like the uh, uh, stone tools they use, the, you know, just you just mentioned the uh uh musical instruments um it, you know, but you also give us some information about uh their appearance and you know you also mentioned that you know, that they might have been uh you know, it seems like they were very tall people and you do give a you know, little hint that you know, you know greg is uh spoken to us about as well as some other uh, guests that uh, you know, maybe th this uh, that their uh, their tall gene could be an explanation for the giants associated with uh, the Adena tribe yeah Absolutely. Um, well, all the evidence so far suggests that the Denisovans were very big. Um, now, skeptics will say, well, so far, you know, we've only got teeth. We've got part of a, of a, of a jawbone, part of a skull. Uh, you know, we've got a, a few fragments of bones. Let's do it. How can you possibly come to that conclusion? But the geneticists and the archaeologists working with these remains of all come out and said that they must have been very large people. And now, how tall they were, we can't say. But I would put money on the table to say that they were very tall. They were, they were, that they were built like the biggest wrestlers that you could find. You know, um, uh, if you can imagine a huge, great wrestler, that's what a Denisovan would look like, in my opinion. And then you had us, who were, you know, medium-sized, 
you know, normal sort of looking like we are today. And then you had the smaller guys who were the Neanderthals. Uh, and obviously beyond that, you have even smaller individuals like Homo floresiensis, you know, the, 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 the hobbit of Flores Island in, in Indonesia, uh, and another very small type of human that's only recently been found on one of the islands of the Philippines. Uh, was it Lucen, um, Homo Lucianus, or whatever it is? And that, you know, they were very, very small, possibly as, as little as three or four feet, uh, some suggest. So you've got almost a mixture of people, like something out of the Lord of the Rings, really, you know, where you had, to, you, right. know, uh, you know, small people, medium people, very big people. And the very big people would seem to have been the Denisovans. And I think that, you know, they did carry a gene relating to uh, extreme height. And that gene found its way into the Americas uh, and that it, they continue to exist. I mean, in Greg's part of the book, I'm sure he'll talk to you all about this when he's on the show. Uh, I mean, when the first Europeans reached places like Patagonia, uh, there were many tribes there, well, not many, but there were certain tribes there that were possibly as much as seven to eight feet in height. Uh, and we quickly killed them all off, obviously. And by the time other Europeans reached there in the 18th and the 19th century, the tallest people were now no more than about six and a half feet. Uh, and today they're probably down to, you know, five and a half to six feet in total. Why? You know, not because the, the stories of these giants were myth, but because we killed them all off. And it's the same in North America as well. When the earliest Europeans reached America, people like De Soto uh, and, you know, and others uh, got into, uh, you know, different parts of North America, they encountered particularly leaders and leaders' family, the chieftains' families, who were of extreme height. You know, anything between six to seven feet and possibly even larger than that. Um, and, you know, obviously there were reports, you know, quite valid reports of of you know whole tribes that seem to be of extreme height but beyond that of course we have the the evidence from various academic journals both modern and uh, from the 19th early 20th century of the bones of extremely tall individuals being found in particular in association with adena mounds uh, now, Adena mounds date probably from about a thousand BC down to about, uh, and I, you know, about two, about two thousand years ago. Um, and in a number of them, we find giant skeletons. But the problem is, and this is the problem, and I, I have to point this out, is that you know we haven't got any of those bones anymore. They were all repatriated. There was no conspiracy, I don't think. Uh, within the Smithsonian to try and hide away the truth related to the giants. Uh, they simply just weren't interested. I mean, these bones languished in boxes uh, for decades. Uh, and with the, the, the NAGPRA repatriation uh, laws uh, at the beginning of the, the 1990s, all of these bones would have been given back to the uh, the first peoples in the area in which they were found. And they obviously reburied them or did whatever it was that they did with them. So there, there is no giant bones around anymore. 
that we can test to see whether they have Denisovan DNA. One day we will. Uh, I have heard rumours that, you know, that there are bones around and they will be tested. But until they are tested, not just under the auspice of archaeologists, but also they are done by laboratories that are reputable and that academic papers are published saying the results of the DNA testing. That's what we want. Uh, and perhaps then we will find out for certain whether the uh, the Adena giants were Denisovans or certainly hybrids anyway. I mean, I, I suspect that they will have some Denisovan DNA in them, but they probably also will have some um, Neanderthal DNA uh, and, of course, modern human DNA as well. Uh, that, that would be my prediction. Okay. It that's fascinating. And you know, uh, one of my friends, Seminole Lisa, who's uh, listening, is just, just uh, loving this uh, Native American information and the giant stuff that uh, you're presenting. And, and another really uh, fascinating aspect of your uh, book that uh ties together all the information you present in the first part is that you know, you're saying the uh, uh after you know, the uh comet event and all uh, you know, the population is uh, just struggling with, you know, like, oh, my gosh, you know, what, what do we just live through? You know, forests are on fire and, you know, the uh, soot all over the place. Uh, you know, you're going to a section where, where the – Denisovian like shaman were a acting like autistic uh, people with uh, using calendars. Mm. I, I, I thought that was very important to understand the mindset of uh, all, you know, these prehist prehistoric people living in a, a, a hostile environment. Can, mm. can, can, yeah. can you give us a little bit more, uh, you know, like tie things together? Unfortunately, we only have yeah. like 20 more That's minutes. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, well, firstly, a number of genes have been inherited from the Denisovans. Uh, for instance, uh, on the Tibetan Plateau and the Himalayas, uh, the indigenous peoples there have what's known as the EPAS, uh, the EPAS-1 uh, gene, which allows them to exist and thrive in extremely high environments where the oxygen is, is particularly low. Now, this we find uh, within the genome of the Denisovans uh, and strongly suggesting that our earliest ancestors gained that gene from 
interbreeding with the Denisovans, who quite clearly had the same gene, used it for the same reasons, but had created it probably across tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years of living in such high altitudes. Now, all of this was proposed, and then, of course, we find the the jawbone of a Denisovan uh, on the northeastern part of the Tibetan Plateau. Plus, uh, it was announced last year that a whole cache of, of, of many hundreds, if not thousands, of stone tools found on the Tibetan Plateau and dating to between 30 and 40,000 years ago, um, and including blade tool technology again, are now attributed to Denisovan presence in that area. So we now know that the Denisovans almost certainly were on the, Denis on the Tibetan Plateau, and that this, they may have been there for hundreds of thousands of years. So that's where we get one of our genes. Um, the, we talked um, earlier about the Inuit people. The uh -huh. Inuit people have two genes which allow them to exist in extremely cold environments. Uh, it allows them to bulk up and resist, you know, the, the cold. Now, these two genes also come from Denisovans, who also had the same genes and must also have used them in the same way. So we now know that the Denisovans lived in extremely high environments that were extremely and and or extremely cold environments as well. Now, that suggests isolation. That suggests that Denisovans did not live together as huge, great, you know, settlements that, that we might understand today. There were probably small enclaves of them, small groups of them that would gather together um, and probably do their own thing. I mean, you know, that, that would be the way I would look at it. But clearly, they did come into contact with modern humans. They interbred with them. They created hybrids. Those hybrids would have been a different kettle of fish. They would have interacted with uh, modern human groups. Uh, and they probably, I would suggest, became the leaders of them uh, because of their quite different mindset. You know, they would have had a completely different outlook, a different mindset. But what we also find, and this is intriguing, is that there are two genes that are in modern humans that have been associated with autism um, and those obviously on the autistic um, spectrum that also are present in, in, in Denisovans. They're not present, as far as I'm aware, in Neanderthals, but they are present in modern humans. Now, we can't say for certain yet whether we inherited these genes from the Denisovans. All we can say is that the Denisovans had the same genes and therefore, there is a likelihood, and this again, it's not just me saying this, the geneticists have said this as well, that they may have had autistic traits. And what we know about people on the autistic spectrum is that although their actions might seem particularly strange to us, uh, and obviously until recent times, they may have even been considered to be backward, but... What we also know is that they have incredible, um, you know, savant talents, which, you know, are unique and are very difficult to understand. I mean, and this includes things like calendar counting, which is where, you know, you would ask them, you know, a particular day in the future, September 21st, 
2053, and somehow, instantaneously, they will know what day of the week that is. Uh, they might be able to replicate music they only hear once. Uh, they can count, you know, the, the, the decimal places of, 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 of pi by, you know, literally thousands. Uh, this has been done. It was done, I, I quote an example. Mm -hmm. uh, they were they able to create art without any kind of formal training. Um, you know, just by looking at something, they can reproduce it, uh, whether it be, uh, you know, as, as, as a painting or sculpture, piece of music, et cetera, et cetera. These are savant qualities. And I suspect that there's a likelihood that the Denisovans had similar types of abilities and that this allowed them to advance much quicker than their obvious aunts rivals, the Neanderthals. Uh, and here's the thing. I mean, we've all seen Rain Man. You know, we all know about mm -hmm. you know, the ability of, of an autistic person to remember numbers and whatever. But it seems as if this is not something they're doing just for show. It's a necessity to keep order and balance within the brain, that they have to project forward with um, you know, with 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 their knowledge of calculation and prediction, in order to uh, function in a uh, a manner which they see as acceptable to themselves, um, and what this I think uh, you know includes is the idea of calendar counting. Why why would their brains do this? Why does it need to know what day of the week? you know, the, the, the 21st of September 2054 is. I mean, wh why? And the answer is, is it's the way that their brain works. And I think that it's something which all of us once had. And it's like this, this type of instinct that animals still have to die. It's like my cat, right? If I say, tuna, tuna, it looks up at me and doesn't really do anything. But if I say tuna tuna with a can of tuna in my hand in the kitchen, he knows he's about to be fed. So with A and B equals C or A and B and C equals D. It's a state of the mind. I, I go into this in detail. And we we used to rely on it, particularly almost certainly when we didn't use language and communi communication in the same way. We had to work by instinct. Um, uh, and I think that this goes back probably to archaic humans and the way their brains would work, which were probably very similar to that of the animal world. And it's something I think we probably lost today within our own modern human uh, lifestyle. We don't really understand. We don't even need it, you know, anymore. Animals still have it. And I think archaic humans had it. And I think that if you were an archaic human and you were on the autistic spectrum, it would become super important, not just to know that A and B equals C or A, B, C equals D, but A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, I, F, A equals Z. Do you get what I mean? Mm -hmm. In other words, their brains had to project forward. And I think that what came with this was an, a, 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 an acute knowledge of cyclic time and the numbers associated with cyclic time, the numbers nine, the numbers 54, the number 72, the number's 108, 432, 216, uh, and multiples there are thereof of them that are almost certainly based on the movement of the sun and the moon. 
and in particular the cycles of the eclipses. Eclipses would seem to have been incredibly important mm -hmm. from a very early age. And what I show in the book is that these ideas originate in the very area where the Denisovans, the Siberian Denisovans were. In particular, again, relevant to all this news this week, that we have knowledge of these same number cycles and this interest in eclipses coming from this bone plaque, you know, like this sort of plate with these carvings of spirals on them that was found at a site called Malta, uh, just to the west of Lake Bacow. It dates to 24,000 years ago. It was an incredibly sophisticated settlement. And this is now within range of these other settlements just to the southeast of here on the south side of Lake Bacow, where the archaeologists and scientists are now beginning to believe that this was where first contact occurred between, between the Siberian Denisovans and ancient modern humans. And I'm certain that whoever created that bone plaque was somebody who either was using the knowledge of the Denisovans and or had Denisovan DNA and their same mindset. And you also work in the empathy for animals. Uh, you know, that seems to be a part of the uh, traits on the autistic uh, spectrum disorder as well. So, and, you know, that takes us back to all the animals uh on the, the the pillars and Gobekli Tepe as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, and, uh, sorry. And, and, oh, and, and you know, we might, uh, you know, I think you only just mentioned it in one sentence, but you, you get all the animals in the Lasco cave, you know, the buffalo and yeah, yeah. Uh, that, so you, you the the theory that you are De developing in, in your book, uh, yeah, there's the evidence that all, all of us are seeing. You, you, you and Greg are just putting it all together, and, and it's, I, I just thought that was uh, a really profound I insight into uh, recreating this time period. And you know, we're we're down to. In ten, nine, ten minutes left, and you know, we also want to give you time to uh, discuss you know, your two conferences in o October as well, and, and you're going to be back with us uh, to uh, for further di the, the discussion, but uh, you know, we want to give you time to uh, plug anything else in your website, uh, uh, two and if we have a, a minute, I have you know a couple more you know, shorter questions. So, uh, Andrew, you, you want to plug ARE and the Wolverhampton conference? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, this is the sales side of it, really, I suppose. But uh, obviously, if people want to know anything about what's going on to do with me, just come onto my website, which is andrewcollins.com. It's all updated. Uh, and you'll find uh, news on, on all of the, the places that um, I'm appearing at, you know, including 
the ARE Ancient Mysteries Conference uh, in October in Virginia Beach, uh, where I'll be sharing the platform with people like uh, Robert Schock will be there. Um, and you you mentioned that the Greenstone 40th anniversary thing. That's something that maybe we, we ought to leave uh, for a completely different conversation. But my career goes back an awful long way. Um, and 40 years ago, in 1979, uh, myself and Graham Phillips, uh, a well-known author who recently had a book published called Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. Um, Good one. Which yeah, I believe you also interviewed Graham on, on that subject. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we made an incredible discovery back in 1979, uh, which was this sword, um, which we found in, in the foundations of a footbridge uh, in the Midlands of England and went on to find this, this green jewel inside this brass casket. Uh, it's a story told in Graham's book, The Green Stone, uh, in my book, The Seventh Sword. Um, and it's true. It's a great story. Um, and we're celebrating its 40th anniversary this year uh, at a place called Wolverhampton in the, in the Midlands of England, where it all began for both of us, working on a magazine called Strange Phenomena uh, at that time. So all the details of that are on andrewcollins.com. And of course, Denisovan Origins. I mean, it's published uh, on September the 4th. It's available now from Barnes & Noble uh, and from Amazon. Um, and it's written by myself and uh, and Greg Little, who will be talking uh, on this very show very shortly to talk mostly about his half of, of, of the book, because we've done it in two parts. There's a part one and a part two. I've done, I've, I've done it from the perspective of the old world going towards the new world, and he's done it from the point of view of receiving all of that migrations, knowledge, wisdom into the Americas and, and, and how it all fits together there. And, it, and, and what, what we've done, I think, is great. You know, and I think that, uh, that, that Greg, Greg writes beautifully, brilliantly, um, and the way that he's brought everything together, I couldn't have done myself. So it was brilliant that he came on board for this project. So that's, that's out now. Uh, and obviously, I've got older books as well. Gobekli Tepe Genesis, The Gods, came out in 2014. The Cygnus Key uh, in 2018. And, and they're, they're all part of something that's a process that's been going on since I wrote a book called From the Ashes of Angels that was published in 1996. I mean, all of this is an extension of that. We are piecing it together bit by bit, year by year. And what you are hearing and what we have written is the latest instalment of something that is every year seems to come more and more right. So please go and check that out if you can. And, and, and Andrew, you know, so, so, some people may uh, think uh, ancient aliens has a little out there uh, unsubstantiated claims and, you know, uh, that's what some may think, but the whole time you know, you've been a commentator on that show, you've been publishing all these books that uh, coalesce ancient mysteries with modern science. How do you achieve that balance? Well, um, I mean, I love ancient aliens. 
for many, many mm-hmm. reasons. And, and one of the reasons why I love it is that it introduces the audience to incredible sights all over the world. Um, you know, it introduces their mysteries, what we know about them, you know, why they might have been built, you know, who the local people were, what they were up to. And, you know, the fact that the, uh, the, the ancient aliens may have been involved in the story is, is, is part of, of, of the bigger picture. And all it's doing is extending the work that Eric von Daniken began back in the, the late 1960s with his book, Chariots of the Gods, which was one of the things that got me into this subject. Now, at the time, I, I believed, you know, wholeheartedly in the aliens coming down and doing their thing. But we obviously know that some of the mysteries that Eric, you know, raised in that book, he wasn't saying that aliens built the Great Pyramid or the Nazca Lions. What he was saying is that there's a mystery here. And was it possible, posing that question, was it possible that aliens were involved? Now, it's, an, it's, it's a question that can't fully be answered until we have absolute evidence of the presence of extraterrestrial intelligences and life existing out there in the cosmos. But when we do have that evidence, we will have to relook at everything. And ancient aliens is preparing the way for that. Now, it could take another 10, 20, maybe even 50 years for that confirmation to come, but it will come eventually. And when it finally does, we will have to look once more at the rise of civilization and the possibility that there may have been some kind of interaction, not simply from aliens coming down in spacecraft. It's not about that necessarily. It's about intelligences that are beyond the physical that may have had an impact on us. I particularly favor the idea that we have been in touch and probably continue to be in touch with um, multidimensional intelligences in, and beings that have had, had an impact on human evolution, possibly for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, um, and that they, they're still around, basically, and that we are beginning to learn more and more about them. That's where my interest lies. Okay. And, and Andrew, we're down to, you know, I don't know, uh, 90 seconds or so. Um, it, it, yeah, I just want to remind the listeners, if you're in America, uh, you can see Andrew talk about all this fascinating uh, material at uh, the ARE uh, complex at Virginia Beach. It, it, it's a great time, great uh, people, speakers. Uh, it, it, it's worth going there and uh, you know, listening to uh, world-class researchers. And, Andrew, I just want to thank you for being a fantastic guest uh, today. And, you know, just, you know we want to have you uh, uh, come. You know, we're looking forward to having you coming back um, in about a mo- month to continue – the discussion. Thank you, Mark, for having me, and oh, Barbara yeah. for introducing us. Yeah. So and, okay. 
uh, uh, we will talk soon. If you like the show, uh, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, and we will see you tomorrow night. Uh, Barbara's going to be doing show with uh, Dina Miriam, and we'll be back Tuesday as well. So th thank you, everyone, and we'll talk uh, to you soon.